Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. Today, I'm speaking to someone I met many years ago at a conference in Brisbane. It was one of those ones where you say hello as you're grabbing a coffee and 30 minutes later, you're still buried in conversation. Cyber insurance is becoming more popular and frankly, it's more important given how the world has changed. So for me, it was great to finally sit down and record an interview with someone who has been really in the thick of it for quite some time. Blake Deacon is the director and the principal broker at Cyber Insurance Australia. And they actually are a specialist broker of the year finalist in 2020 Insurance Business Awards. They've been around since 2016. And Cyber Insurance Australia work with both commercial and corporate clients. So they have a broad experience. And they work with those clients, preparing them for and mitigating uh, the ongoing cyber attacks that are targeted at Australian businesses. In today's conversation, uh, we cover lots. We actually cover the broad picture of cyber insurance, the you know, general information, how cyber insurance has been used, what's covered and the extent of that coverage, some of the gotchas. So what are the things that people need to be aware of? And then the current situation with COVID-19. So you know, how SMEs are struggling, what's the increased risk profile of people working from home in general, and then also what's life like after COVID-19. So please sit back and enjoy the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome along to another episode of the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. I'm joined today by Blake Deacon, and Blake is with Cyber Insurance Australia and has been for the last three and a half years. And he also has spent uh, time at Arthur J. Gallagher, which is one of the world's largest insurance brokers. Good morning, Blake. Morning, Gar. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm working from home, as I think most of Australia is today and, and probably will be for the uh, foreseeable future. How about you? Yeah, so am I. It's a, it's a fun time at the moment of adjustment for everyone, I think. It, it really is. And I think uh, some organizations doing uh, doing that more easily than others. Um, with the, with the, your uh, your background in, in cyber insurance, I thought that might be a really good place to kind of start and, and wondered if you could just give us a broad picture of, of what cyber insurance is. Yeah, sure. So cyber insurance has been around for more than 10 years. Uh, it's been around in the industry mostly for corporates a lot of the sme market hasn't seen this policy or hasn't even heard of it because it just the relevancy hasn't really hit home until say the past five to ten years when we've seen more attacks coming towards these smaller businesses so essentially cyber insurance was designed to look after data breaches uh, and digital content uh, for a business the more we start to see businesses trading online and with a digital footprint, if you will, all of their files are digitized. They don't have anything uh, physical anymore, if you will, in their offices. Uh, they need to protect that the same way they would previously with, uh, say, a fire policy for their, for those big old racks of files. Now we do that digitally. And a cyber insurance policy is the best place to start there. So the policies are in place just basically to cover a data breach, someone attacking your business, and how that's going to impact you. Will there be costs involved when that uh, potentially private data goes out to the world? Could you get extorted uh, for Bitcoin or other different ransoms? Uh, will there be business interruptions to you where you won't be able to continue trading and you'll have a loss of income? These are some of the standard questions that cyber insurance was designed to take care of as those things weren't explicitly covered under existing uh, insurance policies. So one of the things that kind of gets uh, into my mind as you describe that is potentially how hard it is to understand um, things like premiums, uh, you know, given how complex the, the technology that is existing in most organizations and how complex their kind of security controls can be. 
Um, how has the insurance industry gone with kind of establishing what good security looks like versus bad so that they can figure out, you know, what, what the policy looks like for an individual organization? Uh, understandably, they take a lot of uh, points from their existing business models where, for example, a fire insurance policy or when they're trying to set that up and figure out those premiums, they would discuss things with the relevant authorities uh, in those industries, people who are making safety equipment for fires, etc. We do the exact same thing in the digital sense. The insurers and underwriters they start approaching businesses like Mimecast and other cybersecurity uh, solutions providers in the industry, uh, MSPs around the world. They start speaking with them to understand what they believe is best practice and what the IT experts have said, this is what you should be looking for. This is why you should be looking for that. This person's data is secure over that person's because of XYZ solution. So they've really relied on the assistance of the IT industry and the professionals that they've found in there who have been making these best practice guides for security for the past you know, 15, 20 years. And so they've relied on that expertise to understand better if, for example, Mimecast is uh, securing their data correctly. Yeah, I get you. And, and the other side of that is if something does go wrong, kind of establishing, you mentioned like the, the costs and the impact to uh, an organization and things like reputation damage is obviously a big one. Um, are we at a point, given the number of breaches that we see kind of happen and you know get reported, where those costs are understood in a better way? Because I think that's something in the conversations I've often had, that the cost of a breach is, is probably the, the Thing that people have struggled to really understand, but I'm guessing the insurance industry is probably in a pretty good place to have some numbers to support the, the impact and the costs. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, understandably, the insurance industry does see behind the curtain for all industries because we're dealing with the claims. So we get to see the real cost of this. We get to deal with the the, the small nitty-gritty costs that start to pop up, the strange things that people don't expect to have to pay for, uh, the defence costs coming out of nowhere from privacy breaches. Uh, there's, there's quite a lot that the general consumer or just the general business wouldn't see because it is all kept behind the scenes and it is generally private information related to claims, so it's not going to be just thrown out there into the public sphere as quickly as it may need to be to you know, get knowledge across the country and uh, get people prepared. But unfortunately, that's the situation there. But uh, as far as these costs are going, the places that we're seeing the costs come from, uh, mostly uh, the IT repair and response costs haven't been too drastic for small to medium enterprises. We have seen different business interruption costs be an issue, though, where we're able to get an IT firm to potentially go out to the property and step in, have a look, uh, and either assess the damage, figure out if we can uh, restore data, we can still access data, what's really been touched. Uh, those costs have started to escalate over the past three to six months as the complexity of the claims has increased. But for small to medium businesses, realistically, we're, we're seeing claims between sort of, you know, anywhere between like $20,000 up to sort of a million dollars for the small businesses. Uh, and it is, it's so varied because the damages can be very varied as well. So yeah, understood. It's, yes. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, strange costs uh, that, that kind of tweaked my interest. So like, I, I don't know if you're able to talk about some of the, 
the more interesting things where you've, you've seen costs associated with a breach that maybe, um, you know, we wouldn't normally think of. Yeah, definitely. So uh, just one of them off the top of my head, uh, the new uh, privacy laws that have come in around uh, data retention, they also apply in other countries, of course. In the US, we saw a, a company who had uh, one of their employees sent an Excel spreadsheet home to their Gmail address to work on at home. They didn't think too much of it. Uh, they opened that uh, spreadsheet and in one of the other uh, files within that spreadsheet was a client listing with some very uh, private information. Because they had sent that out, they had then incurred a technically illegal data breach, which they then had to notify all of the people which were in that spreadsheet. Even though it, it was opened by their own employee it was using his home network. So they weren't able to confirm that his home network was secure as mm. their business network would be. And as a result, they were forced to notify all of their, their customers which were in that spreadsheet. Now, some of these notification costs, just to let people know that you have had a data breach, that's one of the unknown costs that people didn't expect. Understandably, contacting you might have a thousand clients. You might have fifty thousand clients. The time frame to write letters formally to all of them and contact them either by physically posting them, emailing them, or what have you, is quite time-consuming. Mm. You also do need to give them time to respond to that. So you can expect a lot of phone calls coming back in in response to that data breach. People wanting to know what's happened to their data and if they should worry, etc. So we've seen in some of the uh, Brand, uh, businesses with large client bases, when they're doing these notifications, those notification costs are quite substantial. We've seen uh, small call centers being set up with contracts explicitly for notification costs. So, for example, uh, one of our insureds in America has had a, a cyber breach. They've had to notify a very, very large number of customers. So, They've then had to contract a, a call center uh, a service provider to give them 50 staff members for the next six to 12 months just to take inbound phone calls related to their data breach because they don't understandably have an extra 50 admin staff to be working through this consistently for 12 months. So that's one of the unknown or unforeseen costs that for businesses is the notification costs which come attached to the privacy legislation uh, there are others that's just one of the main ones that sticks out off the top of my head yep um and as you talk through that i mean one of the things that i wonder about is like when it comes to cyber insurance my assumption is the policies can get very complex um, and I wonder if you're able to talk about like what's by default, what's covered, what's the extent of coverage, um, and do you guys mm -hmm. see like a best practice? You know, there's a a particular policy type that applies to maybe 90% of SMEs with some customization, or are they very bespoke and you can have to design them per per organization? Um, so yeah, really like what's covered, what's the extent of coverage for you know an SME or even a, you know full enterprise. Yeah, definitely. So some of the typical costs that you'd run into would be business interruption expenses. So if, for example, the business had ransomware and they've uh, encrypted their documents and they're trying to figure out, should we pay the ransom? Should we call our IT guys? Making that decision could take them a day or two. And to if they decide to restore their data instead of pay that ransom, it could take them another you know, 
could take an hour, depending on their setup, could take a lot longer, depending on who their backups are being done by. Those business interruption uh, expenses where they've had to stop trading normally, deal with this, that can be quite a substantial cost depending on how much one does in uh, trade in a single day. Uh, There's also cover for response and data restoration costs. So essentially to get some experts to, to contact you, advise and help step in and tell you what's happened, how we're going to stop this, clean up the network, make sure there's no uh, you know, nasty, untoward individuals still with access, uh, and then work out the best way to restore any data if it has been lost or unencrypt data if it's uh, available to us. Uh, another important area is legal fines and penalties, which I just touched on briefly with the privacy legislation causing a, a bit of a headache for people. Uh, we can see here that in that scenario, some businesses will go straight to litigation and they will just send you litigation immediately. You may also get fines from the government for privacy breaches, which you have been fairly negligent for. Uh, For example, if you weren't securing any of your data, you did have a breach, you notify the government. Technically, you you would have broken the privacy legislation that came in in recent years and there is a fine or a penalty uh, that could be associated with that. Um, you'll also get cover for blackmail and extortion costs as well. So people clicking on dodgy emails with, uh, you know, just run-of-the-mill ransomware that could goes out in a big phishing attack, that sort of stuff for the small businesses is it's more common than we want it to be. And the interruption to their business or the extortion amount that they're being thrown is, it could be $3,000 just to get them to pay it. It could be $25,000. So, we do have cover in a lot of these policies as standard for blackmail and extortion, as it is one of the main things we see come up. There are a few other areas which are a bit more niche, but that's when we touch on the more uh, custom or bespoke policies for uh, different businesses in strange models in different industries and things like that. Yeah, I get you. What's your take on the, you know, pay the ransom versus don't? And there's obviously a little bit of a disparity in terms of, you know, whether you're uh, in government um, and, you know, rightly so the policy should be, you know, don't negotiate with terrorists, don't pay the ransom. But from an insurance perspective, if there's an opportunity to get data back at a cheaper cost, like, do you guys have a stance on that? <laughs> yes, you can You can see the, uh, the underlying dilemma there for an insurer. Uh, they work financially, so they don't want to have yep. to spend more money than necessary. They do want to help you to the utmost, but they don't want to have to <laughs> unnecessary fees isn't something they're looking for. So, yeah, in those, in those scenarios, they'll really try to work out the costs uh, involved, and they'll really, I guess you could say that they're they're being very very meticulous and picking out those. Um, those claims and which ones they want to pay at this stage, but it's, it's a little bit still up in the air. You know, understood. What are the gotchas? So, you know, things that, you know, when people think of cyber insurance, uh, you know, they think it's a, I don't know, a perfect safety net, but I'm assuming that's, that just can't be realistic. Like what are the things that you, you maybe in your experience think people think they get as part of cyber insurance that they don't or things that they should be doing so that when they do claim, you know, that the claim is successful. Can you kind of run us through your experience of, you know, call them gotchas? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, there's a few things that I've seen in policies uh, in the clauses there surrounding uh, social engineering cover. That's probably one of the biggest ones is uh, social engineering, if people aren't aware, is when someone's trying to gain access to your network without uh, physically breaching that network or doing anything other than talking with your employees in one way or another, trying to get them to provide unnecessary information or just, uh, you know, calling someone asking for their name or details and calling back to pretend to be GAR to anyone that's relevant. So we're seeing those policies coming up. 20 years ago, if someone walked into a, an accountant's firm with a phony mustache and a silly hat and said, hi, I'm the director, I want all the petty cash immediately, they would laugh and say, we know who the director is, you can't come in here. Now that's happening in a digital sense. Very, very similarly, where you're getting this dodgy looking uh, email come through from the director uh, to one of the admin staff saying, oh, quickly pay this invoice of $5,000. Uh, and it's we're seeing that through social engineering that that email address might be slightly different and it's all orchestrated as a scam through another party. We're seeing that type of uh, situation happening quite a lot because that would be considered uh, you know, a con artist trick. It's not technically someone breaching your cyber network or your IT network. All they were doing is uh, using social engineering tactics to then get a password to gain access. They didn't, uh, for lack of a better term, they didn't hack anything to gain access. There was no protocols breached for them in the software to gain access. They used your password and walked straight through the door because they got given that password. So those types of incidents wouldn't be covered under a typical cyber insurance policy the same way you shouldn't just give out petty cash to anyone who walks in the door. So we those types of things can be covered under cyber insurance and we do look to cover those under most of the policies we write here at Cyber Insurance Australia, but it is something to look out for because a lot of insurers uh, and brokers will try and sell you a very cheap insurance policy, which may not actually cover you if someone emails pretending to be someone that they're not and you fall for it. Uh, that's one of the main gotchas, I guess. Uh, other gotchas that lay hidden in the in the paperwork are uh, clauses surrounding the network being used. So if the insured, as I mentioned earlier, took their um, laptop or their work content home and started using their, their home network, arguably that home network isn't secure, uh, whereas their business network is. So if they're taking their, their work laptop home, using their home network to freely access any of their work files, they could be in breach of their cyber policy as they would only be covered under their secure business network that it's attached to uh, for the purposes of the policy. So it's just a couple of little gotchas there to be, to be mindful of. Definitely. And, and one of the things, um, and I know we, we spoke as we were kind of chatting about what to talk about today on the uh, interview, um, was Mondelez. And, you know, that, that kind of story hit the news uh, whenever that was, maybe a year ago, probably have my times wrong there. Um, but I know there was yeah. some litigation involved because, yeah, there was confusion over what was covered and what wasn't. Um, did you want to kind of run us through that story just from your perspective, given you know, you're in cyber insurance and this is your area of ex expertise? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, from my understanding and everything that I've read about them, the case is still ongoing uh, for um, Mondelez versus Zurich, who was their insurer. But essentially, 
not Petra, the attack, uh, the ransomware attack that went around, uh, affected numerous businesses around the world and stopped their trade in various fashions. But uh, Mondelez uh, were a candy manufacturer. They weren't able to uh, logistically start shipping any products. They weren't able to do international orders for a period of time. And so their estimated costs for not only the IT uh, investigation and data restoration side, but also their loss of income, they were estimating $100 million dollars. Uh, Zurich turned around and said, this is not covered as this uh, not Petya, the attack was deemed to be uh, warlike or hostile action because it was attributed to Russia. So because it was deemed as warlike, similarly to a terrorist attack, the insurers have a clause there to say, we don't want to cover you if there's a war and they deemed this a warlike action. So Mondelez then sued Zurich and is currently still trying to sue Zurich over this to say that that's not really fair. Uh, robbed, do we have a security camera that could give us footage to give to the police? In a digital sense, if I've invaded your network, has is there anything to monitor me leaving footprints around? You know, these are the, start, these are the conversations that we start to have on the back of that uh, attribution discussion where... If we can figure out exactly who's done this and we can attribute it correctly, we can most likely pay out that policy. But, uh, you know, in this in this scenario, being a warlike uh, instance, uh, yeah, it's. I think those larger attacks, if we see a global one like that, we will have to wait on government definitions. But for smaller ransomwares and small attacks around the country, they wouldn't define those as a uh, you know a warlike action just because it's most likely just a, uh, a phishing, bulk phishing email that got sent out from someone uh, in a different country, not exactly a, um, you know, potentially a, a Russian war or active war, if you will. So yeah. no, it's you. very important. And, and you mentioned earlier on when we were talking about the gotchas, uh, you know, what, what network is somebody working on? And you mentioned the, the example where somebody brought an Excel file home and, you know, that that was not covered because they weren't part of a, what was considered a secure network with COVID-19 that must be huge at the moment. You know, there's so many of us who are now working at home using work machines. Um, if you're lucky, you've already got things like VPNs that are part of your normal kind of BAU operations. But um, like what's, how do you guys see the current situation with COVID-19 and what's the impact in terms of insurance and insurability of organizations? Yeah, definitely. So it's a, you hit the nail right on the head. It is a big issue at the moment. Uh, as you know, uh, there are a lot of businesses who, who are very uh, digitally proficient, if you will. They have a lot of good solutions in place and they appreciate the risk that they've got there. But we also have, I hate to say, it, probably the majority of businesses around the country, especially in the small to medium uh, group that just simply aren't as tech savvy or responsive as they, sh they really need to be. And that's going to be a big problem. They're, they're thinking it's as simple as just going to buy a laptop, for example, from Officeworks, uh, giving that person, putting all the files on it from their office and sending them home and giving them a mobile phone to call. When the reality is that you, they have an unsecure network at home and you've given them a treasure trove of personal information, which you really need to secure. So because the understanding across the board isn't there, I see a lot of the Australian businesses 
haphazardly struggling to quickly get someone working from home and at the same time they're going to leave themselves very vulnerable and it's particularly risky at the moment i'm going to say um one of the things i've seen so much coverage of is how many of those social engineering attacks are being sent out through sms and through email um you know pretending to be from the you know the cdc or from australian governments uh, you know with updated covid information or information around how centrelink will work for you if you've lost your job so just to kind of riff on your point it, it's interesting because people are now working from home in potentially unsecured environments but actually they're maybe at a higher risk because there's just so much uh, covid related phishing scams that are being sent around one of our um the guy who actually runs our local messaging security operations center andrew gosney I was chatting to him and he, he reckoned that there's about one in eight of the emails we're seeing at the moment mention COVID. And that, that's oh, wow. a huge amount of uh, volume. That's not all bad emails or, or malicious emails, but that's just the, sure. the huge, huge volume of COVID-related stuff um, that's out there at the moment. So it points to, I mean, it's obviously a unique time of our lives in, in general, but um, yeah, just in terms of the risk that people are at at home, it's, uh, it's even more so uh, because of what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, like it, it is. It's just quite bizarre. Um, look, as, as we get kind of close to the end here, I would be keen to get your thoughts on what do you see life after COVID-19 looking at, uh, looking like? What do, you, what do you think is going to be different with, um, with, well, generally with the world, but probably from a cybersecurity and, and cyber insurance perspective, what do you think will be different? Yeah, for sure. So uh, because, as you touched on, there's this gigantic work-from-home initiative that's sweeping across the nation and most nations. Any businesses that are able to, are they're going down that path. Anytime we go headfirst uh, into something without appreciating the risks, we're going to have a lot of people that get burnt by that, unfortunately. So there are going to be a lot of businesses who go into this and have problems, but there are going to be a lot of businesses that go into this they see the effectiveness of working from home. They appreciate their cyber risk there because it is greater working from home, of course. Uh, and I think we're going to have a, a more uh, understanding and knowledgeable um, set of businesses around the country moving forward. We're going to have more people working from home consistently moving forward. And we're going to have more cyber insurance events and policies sold as a result. Unfortunately, <laughs> there will be more claims to come. There will be people who get burnt, but it is a stepping stone in the right direction, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, and I've heard that from a few people. You know, hopefully, uh, it, as a society, and I, I kind of believe in this that it will be a thing that pushes some some good changes. And um, you know, obviously, it's a horrible situation we find ourselves in at the moment. But yeah, my. My view is three, three to six months from now, we'll come out of it stronger, better, and we'll have learned lots, and um, it will be hopefully a more resilient cyber in uh, cyber uh, nation um, as a result of that. Um, we have run into uh, a time limit here, I'm afraid. Uh, Blake, this is definitely an area yep. where I, I feel like we could keep on talking for quite some time. Um, I just really wanted to uh, thank you, uh, really thank you for taking the time for kind of filling us in on uh, both the broad aspects of cyber insurance, some of the gotchas, um, and obviously how it relates to uh, the current strange situations that we find ourselves in where everybody's working from home. But yeah, really, thanks so much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been been good. And as you said, you, 
I could talk about this stuff all day. So if anyone's got questions, they want to have a chat, I'm sure they'll find my details somewhere around the, the podcast link. And there you go. As mentioned, we have included Blake's details in the show notes. So please do contact him for any questions out of today's interview. And over the next couple of months, we have some great guests. So please do stay tuned and watch out for details. Otherwise, stay safe and thank you for listening. Thank you.